Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. As always, I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, a very special guest, Marianne Williamson, the best-selling author, the political activist, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, and now the 2024 Democratic presidential candidate. We discuss her jump in the polls against incumbent President Joe Biden, a jump that seems fueled by young people. We also talk about the Democratic Party's general hostility towards primary challenges. We talk about her critique of the Biden administration's climate policies. And we discuss the persistence of science denialism in everything from environmental policy to health policy. It was a really wide ranging discussion. This week, our paid subscribers also get some special bonus segments. Right now on our premium feed, you can hear the extended portion of last week's interview with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the portion of the discussion where I asked her to describe in detail the influence of money in Congress and how it really works on a day-to-day level. Also coming up on the premium feed, a discussion with the acclaimed economist Richard Wolff about how progressives should think about the escalating economic tensions between the United States and China. If you're not already a paying subscriber and you want access to the premium feed, head on over to levernews.com and become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed with extended interviews and those bonus episodes. Plus, as a paid subscriber, you'll have access to all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Just hit the subscribe button at levernews.com to support the work we do. Also, if you like this podcast, we'd really appreciate your help. Tell your friends and family about Lever Time. Leave a rating and review on your podcast player right now. Independent media will only grow and thrive because of passionate people and word of mouth, and we really need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm here today with Lever Times producer, Jared. What's up, producer Jared? Hey, David. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We've seen a pretty big jump in our uh, listenership here at Lever Times, so I'm pretty psyched about that. The uh, big AOC interview last week, and, and I, I want to ask you something about that because um, – it's funny after we you know did this interview with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and we first just cut some interesting clips that she had said about statements about Clarence Thomas, and we post that online. And immediately, when you saw it on Instagram or Twitter, the comments that were just flooding this short little video clip uh, showed me just how. I don't know if I think that she's polarizing, but she just uh, creates a lot of passionate responses out of people. And they were saying just uh, responses all over the place about AOC, about how she was, uh, you know, sell a sellout or how you were doing softball questions and all of these different responses. And this was for like a one minute clip before we'd even posted the full interview. People were already making up their minds about what they thought about the interview. And I really hadn't seen something like that from the inside. What did you make of it? I mean, she's a lightning rod. So people have have strong opinions. And I I saw some of the allegations. Oh, you guys did a softball interview. You know, I mean, here's the thing. And I, and I tweeted this. Uh, and it's something that I learned when I was a radio host here in Denver for five years, everyday drive time radio host. And it's like, 
listen, you can ask really tough questions, but you don't have to be an asshole about it. Just because you're not yelling at somebody, screaming at them, uh, doesn't mean your questions aren't tough. And by the way, it doesn't mean that, that the listeners have to like the answers from the politician. Part of my job here is to ask tough questions and let the politician respond to them so that the audience can make their own conclusions. I'm not here to force conclusions down people's throats. So some people love the responses from AOC. Other people didn't like the responses from AOC. We tried to ask the toughest possible questions that our audience gave us when we asked our audience what they wanted to hear AOC uh, be asked. And so I kind of, I just reject the idea that it was, a, it was a softball interview. I mean, that, that's just a lot of nonsense. Well, what do you think people expected out of you with this interview? Because I, um, I don't think you approached it that much differently than you approach any of your other interviews. Do you think that they, that they wanted you to, uh, you know, throw out a bunch of gotcha questions or sort of change you, change how you approach these interviews just because it was AOC? I mean, I think, I think people have been taught to believe that a tough interview is when the host becomes a WWE host, like a pro wrestling, a pro <laughs> wrestling character just screaming and berating somebody. I just, that's just not, that's not the way I work. I, I, I and I, I frankly think that's a lot of sound and fury and not a lot of substance. And I'm more interested in substance. I'm more interested in asking people tough, uh, substantive questions. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they're not tough and substantive if you're, if you're not a, a total asshole about it or you're not yelling at the person. And so I would encourage people who listen to these interviews to make a distinction between a, a pundit or a hot taker screaming into a camera at a guest and not get uh, necessarily confused about how tough something is by the uh, decibel level of the host's voice or how mean they are, how impolite they are. Uh, the toughest questions, in my view, are the questions that are asked in a civil way, uh, but that are unrelenting in their uh, prioritization of facts, of inconvenient facts. And we asked a lot of those questions. And I think, I actually think the interview turned out really great. And, I, and again, I want to say, to be very clear about when I say what I, what I mean by that, what I mean is, is that it turned out great. And that I think if people hated her answers, loved her answers, liked them, didn't like them, that's up to the individual listener. Our job is to ask the questions and elicit uh, uh, responses from a politician that illuminate uh, how they think about things and what they're promising to do about big problems. I'm not here to tell you to like or not like uh, a given politician. I'm not here to tell you to vote one way or the other. That's why I think we got responses all over the spectrum there. That's why I think a lot of people, some people loved it. Some people hated it. Some people were mad. Some people like that's in to my, in my view, that's the sign of a uh, mission accomplished on behalf of the media organization, the news organization that held that form. So I'm, I'm thrilled with it. Uh, I'm thrilled that it got as much attention. And, and I will say one of the things I did agree with her on was I, th and to me, it was the most newsworthy part of it. And it wasn't the part where she said Clarence Thomas should be impeached. Although I obviously agree with that. Uh, it was the part where she said that Joe Biden's lurch to the right is very dangerous, both politically and on policy. It, and I think we need to have more people uh, in government and politics say that. 
Uh, now you can you can say, well, she hasn't taken uh, enough serious steps to stop that rightward lurch. You can you can you can make all of those arguments, but and. and all of those arguments, if you want to substantiate them, uh, I don't begrudge people for making those arguments at all. I'm not here to defend one or another politician. But I am here to say I think it was good that she used the opportunity to be very clear about that. And, and I agree with her. I think Joe Biden's lurch to the right is a significant problem, which, of course, is a good segue to our big interview uh, of this episode of Lever Time. Uh, our interview this week is with a Democratic candidate for president who was planning to challenge Joe Biden in the 2024 Democratic primary. Uh, up next, our interview with Marianne Williamson. Welcome back to Lever Time. My guest today is Marianne Williamson. Many people first became aware of Marianne Williamson in 2019 and 2020 when she ran for president in the Democratic primary. Marianne is known as a spiritual thought leader, a political activist, and a best-selling author. The Democratic Party has become notoriously hostile to any primary challenges to incumbents up and down the ticket, and especially the idea of a primary challenge to an incumbent president. So I was really interested in hearing from Marianne about what she expects to face in a primary challenge against a sitting president. In this interview, we discuss her biggest criticisms of the Biden administration. We discuss a new poll that suggests she has something of a base of support, at least right now, among young people. And we discussed why she believes Democratic voters may break precedent and support an outsider candidate for president who has never held elected office. That's something that Democratic voters have never done. Here's our interview with Marianne Williamson. Hey, Marianne, how you doing? I'm well, thank you, David. Nice to see you. It's great to see you, too. Um, so you are running for uh, president. You're running in the Democratic primary. Uh, in 2024, you ran in 2020 in the in the primary. So let's let's start there. What did you learn from the 2020 Democratic primary? What are the two, three, four big takeaways that you learned from that experience uh, that most informs your campaign in 2024? I learned that the political media industrial complex is even more corrupt and in a way more vicious than I would have feared. And I learned that the voters are even more wonderful than I would have hoped. I learned the real gap that exists between the what I have experienced as the dignity, the decency, the open-mindedness, and the basic goodwill that people want to at least aspire to among the voters and a political system that does more to obstruct the expression of that um, high-mindedness than to uh, inspire it. The Democratic Party seems incredibly hostile to the idea of primaries in general, and in particular, primaries against incumbents. I've said this before, I'll say it again, the hardest thing to do in all of American politics, really at any level, from uh, all the way from city council all the way up to the presidency is to successfully challenge an incumbent in a democratic primary uh, that almost never ever happens uh, it is so incredibly rare and i've worked on a bunch of primaries uh democratic primaries i worked for ned lamont 
against Joe Lieberman. I worked for my wife's uh, Democratic primary uh, against an incumbent that was actually successful, uh, one of the very rare ones. Uh, I've worked for obviously for Bernie Sanders in in 2020. Uh, uh, now, granted, that wasn't against necessarily a sitting incumbent, but a kind of quasi incumbent in a former vice president. So, knowing that, I would ask you your opinion on why you think. The, not only is the Democratic Party leadership seems to be so hostile to the idea of a primary, but clearly there's a voting base that looks skeptically upon uh, primary candidates uh, against incumbents. I wonder if you agree with that and why you think that is. First of all, I do agree with it, although I make a distinction, as you sort of just did, between the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment leadership. Um, that the, the latter is clearly hostile in all the ways that you said. The democratic electorate has become deeply codependent in its relationship to the DNC and the democratic leadership in a way that number one, you don't see on the Republican side. And number two, wasn't true when I was growing up. When Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy said they were going to primary Johnson, nobody said they shouldn't or couldn't or thought, even thought it was odd. Even when Teddy Kennedy said he was going to primary Carter, nobody thought, oh, how dare he? So that narrative hadn't been created yet. It's really a reversion to a time 100 years ago when a bunch of men sat around a table smoking their cigars, thinking that they had the right, they were entitled to determine who the candidate should be, which to me is particularly outrageous because the presumption there is they got this. And if anything has been proven over the last few decades, they don't got this. So the idea that they know better, you know, the idea that we should go, oh, they know better is particularly absurd in today's world, I think. I mean, right after Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire in 2020, uh, Jeff Bezos's newspaper, The Washington Post, published a piece with the headline. This is the headline. I'm going to read it to you. It's time to give the elites a bigger say in choosing the president. So, and and I, I picked that out because I think it does illustrate that it has been normalized, uh, the this idea that primaries are bad, challenges to incumbents are bad, uh, the party bosses, if you will, the elites, the political class should uh, choose uh, party nominees. Now, last week we had uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on our show, and I asked her about this hostility to primaries. Her, her as somebody who is one of the rare few who has won a Democratic primary against a Democratic incumbent, she said as somebody who had won a primary uh, that she would never speak ill of primaries and, and essentially thinks the primary process uh, is, is a healthy one. But I would, I would ask you to address the trope that you hear so often, which is to say the trope that says, Primaries are bad uh, for uh, potential nominees. Primaries weaken a party that the more the party fights with each other in primaries, the more it imperils uh, the party's ability to win a general election. I'm sure that has been thrown at you. I'm sure it will be thrown at you. What do you say to that argument when a voter or, or somebody in the media brings that up? It's not an argument. It's a narrative created by the DNC and the Biden administration in order to gaslight people. Look, in, in 2016, there was certainly a big fight 
among the Republicans, right? But Trump won. So this idea that if a lot of people are arguing in the primary that somehow that's going to, uh, to make us, uh, less capable in winning the general election is ridiculous. As a matter of fact, I would argue that if the DNC had kept their hands off the scale in 2016, let it just be Hillary or Bernie, whichever one the voters chose, that Trump would never have become president. So if anything, the, the evidence would imply that a primary is a good thing. Among other things, it's democracy. The, the, the traditional role of the party is to stay out of this until the voters have spoken. Then once the nominee is chosen, the DNC is supposed to come in there and do everything they can to support the nominee in the general election. So this is a recently formulated power grab on the part of the Democratic establishment elite and the DNC. And now, of course, their, their decision, they have decided they, it's so interesting because these people would, would have us believe that they're the great protectors of democracy. And yet in this particular situation, how wary they are of the actual democratic process. So they would have us uh, clear the field uh, so that Biden is just the one we all go with because they say so, as though we're not even supposed to have an intelligent conversation among ourselves about whether or not he's the best person to win in 2024. We're not even supposed to have the conversation. So as much as someone like AOC might say, I would never put down a primary. They're passive. All those people are passively putting down a primary by keeping their mouth shut. Well, I, I also think the argument that primaries weaken general election nominees. I mean, you mentioned uh, some past examples about on the other side, on on Donald, on the Republican side, Donald Trump. But the 2008 primary was one of the most vicious Democratic primaries in the party's modern history between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And Barack Obama emerged, in my view, as a stronger nominee because he was battle tested. And he said that himself. That's exactly right. Number one, he, he admitted that. And number two, the whole country got to see who he was because of that experience. Absolutely. So the narrative is, 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 it's nothing but PR. That's all that that narrative is. It's not, it's not an in good faith argument. I, I, I agree. I am somebody who thinks that primaries make candidates stronger. I have been dismayed by, again, I'm not surprised by the party establishment and the party elite's hostility to primaries. They are invested in the current power structure as it stands right now, a power structure that doesn't want to be challenged uh, in intra-party primaries. I'm not surprised by that. I'm more dismayed, maybe not surprised, but dismayed by how that thinking has become more pervasive among rank and file democratic activists and democratic voters. It's it's troubling because to my in in my view it's the voters and the activists job in part to demand more of of these parties, both of the of the major parties, all of the parties that exist. And I think there's kind of a subservient role now, or at least a, a subservient psychology uh, among a lot of liberals that says our job is to serve the party. It's not the party's job to serve us. Now, now I, I, I do want to turn to Joe Biden specifically. There, there's a new poll out, and we're going to go through a couple of, of pieces of polling data. There's a new poll out uh, this week that says... Just a third 
of American voters say that President Biden deserves to be reelected and a majority in his own party say they would like to see somebody else as the Democratic presidential nominee in 2024. Why do you think that is? For obvious reasons. I think a lot of people, uh, and that, that poll also shows this, are grateful to the president for many things. He defeated Trump in 2020. He's done some things better than some people would have thought. But many people feel, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you what you've done. But in moving forward, we can do better and we must do better because the 24 election is going to be very different than the 2020 election. They're going to be coming at us with some very big lies. And the only way we're going to defeat those big lies is with some very big truths. Those big truths have to do with a deeper analysis that of what's going on in this country, where we are as a country, than the democratic establishment wants to have. Because it has to do with the undue influence of corporate money on our system. It has to do with the kind of corporate tyranny that not only holds our government in its grip, but definitely the people of the United States in its grip. The only way we're going to beat the Republicans in 2024 is with a genuine economic alternative, a genuine fundamental course correction, an a U-turn that actually admits the malfeasance of the of the political system across the board and commits to a season of change and repair. So you mentioned corporate influence over uh, the government writ large. I, I presume that includes, in your analysis, uh, the Biden administration. I, I want to ask you to be s- specific about that. Um, and I, I, I want to offer some some context for why I'm asking that. When I was working for Bernie Sanders in 2020, uh, Zephyr Teachout, one of Bernie Sanders' supporters, published an, uh, an op-ed in the middle of the campaign. She was a supporter of, of Bernie, saying that Joe Biden has a corruption problem. And she listed out a number of places uh, in which he had served his donors, including uh, one of the most prominent ones was the credit card industry, uh, the financial industry in pushing, for instance, the uh, horrible bankruptcy bill that crushed a lot of working class people. And I bring this up because when she published this and said he has a corruption problem, it became an enormous controversy uh, in a kind of how dare you sort of way that she, that 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 the allegation was portrayed as so outrageous and out of bounds as and ultimately Bernie Sanders apologized for it. Now, I was horrified and dismayed at the entire uh, apology. Uh, I thought this is the kind of discussion that should be had in Democratic primary. Money went into Joe Biden and policy came out. And I don't even understand why that's controversial to say. So I, I want to ask you to be specific about where you think corporate influence has been most um, uh most pervasive and intense in the policies of the Biden administration and what you might say to folks who who would say that making such allegations is out of line. Out of line. I love that. I'm an American. The Democratic Party should not be telling a Democratic voter what's quote unquote out of line. That's really, there's that codependent relationship right there. First of all, the obvious, the most obvious one is the Willow Project. The president had said that there would be no further drilling on public lands. The president had said that he recognizes that climate change is the existential threat to the human race. And yet he has provided more 
uh, permits for oil drilling than tr even Trump did. And of course, the Willow Project, $8 billion to ConocoPhillips uh, so that they can extract uh, fossil fuels on the north slopes of Alaska. That's the most obvious one at the moment. Uh, when it came time for old Labor Joe uh, to show that he really meant it when it came to the railroad workers uh, and their struggle with their bosses, well, really at that time, all they were asking was for sick pay. Uh, he came down on the side of the bosses. Uh, he had said that there would be a $15, million, a $15 an hour minimum wage, which is should be the minimum that we're even considering. Uh, once the parliamentarian said that it couldn't make it into the bill, he certainly found it convenient to hide behind her skirts. Um, and even though they cut in half uh, the uh, child poverty rate, with their child tax credit, when that expired six months later, they didn't get around to permanentizing it. In other words, they, in the final analysis, more often than not, come down on the side of business. Now, this is how I see Biden. The way I see Biden related to these things is how I see all the corporate Democrats. They try their best to have it both ways. They do see the pain and they are interested in and will make efforts to ameliorate the stress that people are experiencing as long as it doesn't challenge that underlying corporate profit bottom line that always inevitably makes the return of that pain inevitable. They'll alleviate stress, but they will not stand for genuine fundamental economic reform. And I do. So uh, let, let's go a little bit deeper on that because it's a topic that I have been reporting on for a very long time. And I think you articulated it there uh, quite uh, explicitly and quite uh, articulately. Um, there is an underlying theory in the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Let's be very precise about this. Their ideology, I mean, what, you could look at it and say their ideology is just corruption. Everything is just a, um, is just a patina for corruption. But taking them at their, at their word uh, on some of the policies, for instance, that you mentioned, if you take that as an ideology, there does seem to be a, a theory that we can solve major problems, major economic problems, and also preserve the economic status quo, that we can help millions and millions of people, uh, and the rising tide can lift all boats, and there can also be yachts as well. I don't believe that that's true. I believe there is a which side are you on question that in order for uh, millions of people to, for instance, have a decent health care, uh, you cannot have health care billionaires. Those two things cannot exist uh, together. I, I wonder if you agree. And I, I would also ask you whether you think that really is their theory, whether that really is their uh, principled ideology, or whether you do think it is just essentially a cover for corruption. I think that many of those people are so buffered emotionally from the ravages of human suffering that is on the other side of the gates that they live behind, that they don't honestly recognize what it means that 18 million Americans cannot afford to fulfill the prescriptions that their doctors give them. They 
they clearly don't recognize what it means that 68,000 people die in this country every year from lack of health care. They don't understand what it means really on an emotional, visceral level that 85, uh, 65% of, no, 85% of Americans are underinsured or uninsured, that one in four million, Amer uh, that one in four Americans live with medical debt, that Americans are out there rationing their insulin because they're not hungry and they have decent health care. Let's flip this around a little bit. There, there are some folks who say, look, compared to the past two Democratic presidents, Joe Biden represents a significant policy step forward. Uh, they look at, as an example, they look at Bill Clinton deregulating Wall Street, uh, Bill Clinton's welfare cuts, by the way, FYI, things that Joe Biden himself supported. <laughs> so let's just put that as a not too small asterisk. Uh, they look at Barack Obama essentially using the healthcare reform debate to prop up the health insurance industry, using the uh, Wall Street crisis to bail out and prop up Wall Street. They look at all of that and then see Joe Biden and they see somebody who has uh, appointed people who are more affiliated uh, with organized labor. They look at, uh, for instance, the American Rescue Plan as something so much better than the uh, bank bailouts. And I, and I just want to be clear on my position here. I mean, I think the American Rescue Plan was a terrific thing. I think it actually was the best thing that's happened uh, as, a, as a piece of legislation that I can remember in my entire lifetime. And they say, they look at that and they say, well, Joe Biden is the best president that we've, the Democratic president in a long time. Uh, and so we should reelect him. What do you say to that? So the American Rescue Plan was good, but its effects are no longer here. Build Back Better Plan would have been good. But basically what you're saying is that they have given cookies as opposed to crumbs. And what I'm saying is that you can't live on cookies either. We shouldn't be comparing this to what a Democratic president did 10 or 20 years ago. We should be comparing it to every other advanced democracy in the world. Every other advanced democracy in the world has universal health care. Every other advanced democracy in the world has tuition-free college, which we had until the 1960s. And when I was growing up, a Blue Cross Blue Shield was a was a nonprofit. Every other advanced democracy in the world has free childcare and has paid family leave and sick pay and a guaranteed living wage. That inside the Beltway conversation you're having doesn't mean anything to the to the average American voter. And even that staying within the confines of that conversation is staying within this bubble with which Democrats lose and out of which Americans are always so shocked when they lost because they don't realize that none of it has anything to do with the visceral experience of the majority of Americans. If you're among the 20% of Americans for whom the economy is doing fine, then a lot of those things that you just said matter. The point is 20% is like an enchanted economic island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. That is what Bernie spoke to. That is what Trump spoke to, although in Bernie's case, he actually meant it. But this other stuff of the, the conversation that you're mentioning that the corporate Democrats are having, it's losing. It doesn't mean anything. In fact, it infuriates for good reason on some level, the the average American who is struggling and who is really resentful that those kind of effete arguments are made to keep them from being able to simply survive and to feed their children and to have a decent wage and to get health care. I, 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 I guess I was going to ask you a question about some of the uh, current polls, but, but, but before I do, just to put a, 
put a final point on this uh, on this part of the conversation. The other argument that you hear all the time is, well, listen, um, okay, Marianne, you're right. Joe Biden hasn't done X, hasn't done Y, hasn't done Z, and has done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all this bad stuff over here. Uh, but he really wants to do all of this good stuff. The problem is, is that they only have 50, 51 um, senators uh, and there's always Joe Manchin and, and Cinema and whoever the rotating villain is, and that Joe Biden's really trying to do the right thing, and that that people who say that he hasn't done what needs to be done are unsophisticated in their understanding of what the politically possible is. How do you respond to that? I respond as a woman. And when a man is, keeps cheating on you and keeps cheating on you and keeps cheating on you, but then every two or four years comes back and says, oh, baby, come on, give me one more chance. At a certain point, that woman says, no, no, no. There's always an excuse with those people. Can you imagine the Republicans hiding behind the skirts of the parliamentarian when they really wanted to get something done? It's true that they will abuse their power, but the Democrats won't even use it. They're mealy-mouthed, and they'll always come up with an excuse. There are plenty of executive uh, orders that the president could have, uh, could have effectuated. And more than anything, the president could have used the bully pulpit in ways that he has refused to do. So you're right. He has made some appointments, like with the NLRB, with labor. But still, when it comes to that bottom line, he stays on this side of fundamental economic reform. That's all we need to know. And that's what we should be discussing. Do you think that he has recently tacked to the right? Or do you think, I mean, there, it's kind of a philosophical question, but there, there have been a series of things that he's done. I mean, the, the breaking the rail strike, uh, the Willow Project, there was an immigration issue. Uh, there's an argument, there's some folks saying out there that, that this, this represents a, de a deliberate decision to move to the right in advance of the election. Actually, to go back to our AOC interview, she said, this is extremely uh, dangerous. It's not only bad on policy, it's politically dangerous. But there are other folks who said, this, is, this isn't attack to the right. This is who Joe Biden has been and always has been. And this is not any kind of change. I'm just, I'm just curious, do you, do you think he's trying to move to the right deliberately? Or is this just an expression of, of what the administration is? I don't care. You know, it appears that since Ron Klain left, there is this move to the right. Some of them have actually said, not as an interpretation, but as an actual statement of the will of the campaign. They're going to move towards this mythical center where they think they're going to get more independence. It seems that the establishment Democrats are intent on shrinking their base. They treat progressives like we're unruly children who should sit down and just let the, the, the adults who clearly know what they're doing run this thing. So what the psychology is, you know, he's a nice man. George Bush was a nice man. Man. Talk to the people in Iraq, generations, lost generations, murdered souls, ask them how nice he is. So I, this conversation of who's nice and really has the best of intentions, you know, the, the Democrats do this all the time. The Democrats do this all the time. If a Republican does it, we scream bloody murder. If an Obama does it or a Biden does it, oh, poor baby, he really wanted to get it done, even in situations and cases where there's no evidence whatsoever that he even tried. We've got to stop making excuses for these guys. I want to get to, this, to the horse race polls. So there have been some polls about the 2024 race, um, but a lot of these polls don't even mention you. Um, so let's turn a little bit to the, to the media here for a second, because that, that's not necessarily a, a Joe Biden thing. That's a, a kind of how the media treats different kinds of candidates. And, you know, in these polls, it's Bernie Sanders, it's uh, 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 
uh, Michelle Obama, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, all these people are listed in these polls, but you are in, in a lot of these polls noticeably absent. Why do you think that is? Oh, gee, I can't figure it out. Come on, let's be real. Somebody's rankled. Now, the five th- there's a 538 A-rated poll that came out last week that put me at 10%. In some of these polls, you're right, I'm not even mentioned. What do you think that says? Hello. One of the things I mentioned earlier is a political media industrial complex. I saw how this works. I saw how it worked in 2020. These guys are married. There's an unholy alliance there. And there's one side of the mainstream media that takes its direction from the RNC. And there's another side of the uh, political media that uh, the mainstream media that clearly takes its directions from the DNC. This is no, this should not be a surprise to anyone at this point. What does surprise me sometimes is some of the people who fall for that. I want to go a little bit deeper into the into the numbers about your candidacy. Uh, just to go back to the poll that, that you mentioned. Um, 10% overall of likely Democratic voters saying they'd probably or definitely back you. This is a poll by Echelon Insights. Uh, and I, I believe this poll showed that a stronger contingent of support when you dig down into the numbers is among uh, people below the age of 30. So let's talk about that for a, a, a little bit. I want to hear you explain why you think uh, younger people maybe more uh, interested in your in a candidacy like yours uh, than necessarily older people? Well, because they're not even 20th century creatures. A Gen Z person wasn't even born in the 20th century. Or if they were born there, they just hung out for a few years while they were babies. Okay? They see no reason why they should live at the effect of bad ideas left over from the 20th century. They also have no nostalgia for a time, as I do, as I think you do, for a time when, yeah, but the Democratic Party really did show up. In their experience, the Democratic Party hasn't really shown up for them any more than the Republicans have. So they don't, they're, they're open. I, I've noticed this. And part of my making a decision whether or not to even run entailed a college tour. I went to eight colleges and universities. I wanted to check it out. I wanted to hear from these people. And I saw, oh, they're not tied to any of that neoliberal BS. They're not tied to any of that manipulated narrative of how we really should support the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party has supported them. But they're not stupid. They hear, you know, when I, when you talk about FDR, when you talk about the New Deal, when you talk about the very idea that the party has been at times and still could be a real advocate for the working people of the United States, they're not stupid. They hear that. So yeah, you know, I mean, people tell me every day you're blowing up on TikTok. My teenager, my 20 year old called me and uh, says, you know her. I mean, it's pretty funny. And yeah, on that poll, it says 21%. That's where my numbers are with people under 30. So I do understand why, because in many ways, they represent a similar mentality to what I and my generation had when I was their age. So, you know, some generations are like a perfect third on the piano. I always say, old people hear me, young people hear me. The people in the middle wish I, (laughs) in a lot of cases, just wish I'd go away. But the young ones and the old ones, they they hear me. They get it. Let's talk about uh, experience here for a second. Um, Donald Trump, the first president, the first person to become the president uh, after not holding elected office, I think in history, although I, I'm, I'm, I think it goes, I, I'm not sure that's true back in the 18th and uh, 19th century, but in the modern history. Um, and I want to, I, I want to take seriously 
the notion that, especially on the Democratic side, there's a lot of evidence that Democratic voters, uh, even more than Republican voters, uh, like to or are more willing to support candidates for higher and higher office who have held office before. Now, maybe some of that's credentialism. Maybe some of that is uh, people want to elect people to – Democratic voters want to elect people to higher office who they feel have experience in government. Um, so with all of that as context, you have not held an elected office. What is your uh, response to those who would say, listen, we should be interested in people who have experience in running uh, pieces of the government if we're electing a president? How do you respond to that? First of all, it displays a great naivete about what you think those people do all day, including how much time they spend on the phone raising money. That's number one. Number two, I think it's very interesting what the Constitution says related to this. The Constitution says that in order to be president, you have to have lived here for 14 years. You have to be 35 years or older, and you have to have been born here. Now, if the founders had wanted to say you had to have had an elected office, then they would have, but they didn't. And I think they didn't for a reason. They were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself. What do you think are the skill sets required to lead us through the challenges of a particular moment? I don't think the problem with um, Donald Trump was his lack of governmental experience. It was his lack of ethics, his lack of character. He was a very effective president in all the terrible, in some very, very terrible ways. But if he had been a different person and he had wanted to bring people around him where instead of someone like a Stephen Miller or Sebastian Gorka, whatever, he had brought a different kind of person around him, uh, then it would have been a completely different story. The idea that you're, that you're, um, uh, repeating here is the idea that only people whose careers have been entrenched for years within the system that is the car that drove us into the ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of the ditch. So I, I, I don't think that we need somebody qualified to perpetuate that system. We need somebody qualified to disrupt that system. And that is one of the things that I feel that I do bring. Washington, D.C., as you well know, David, is filled with political car mechanics. And there's some very good political car mechanics in Washington, D.C., and I would bring them into my administration. But the problem is not that we don't have good political car mechanics. The problem is we're on the wrong road. We're six inches from the cliff in terms of the state of our democracy, in terms of the state of our economy, in terms of the state of our environment. What are those people so self-satisfied over? What are they so self-congratulatory about? On what basis do they say it has to be one of us? Have we not given them enough, enough, uh, enough experience and enough, uh, uh, enough of our nation's history that at some point we should say, you know what, guys, we need to intervene. You are the status quo. The status quo is not going to disrupt itself. You have us on a self-defeating, self-destructive trajectory to the point where we could actually destroy the habitability of this, of this planet within a hundred years. We, the people, will take it from here. That's what needs to be said now. But I would, I would ask you this question about the system itself. Are you arguing that every single, everybody in the system by virtue of being in it is part of the problem? 
No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that about Bernie. I don't believe that about quite a few of the progressives. You know, uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib was uh, talking the other day about Julian Assange. It took a long time for one of them to mention him, but she did. Uh, uh, no, there are progressives that, uh, and sometimes, hey, listen, I, I, sometimes I agree with something that a corporate Democrat might do. It's not black and white. But what is black and white is where we find ourselves as a democracy, where we find ourselves in terms of the habitability of the planet. You know, everywhere I go, um, and this was true in 2020, and it's even more startling results now. I will go into a room full of voters and I will say, we're going to do something. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if something applies to you. And then I'm going to ask you, please, if you raise your hand, keep it up because I want everybody to be able to look around the room. Now, I have done this all around the country. And this is my question. Have you heard a young person say, or are you a young person who has ever said these words? Under normal circumstances, I would be considering having children. But given the state of the world, particularly the environment today, I'm thinking it's not a responsible thing to do. And I am shocked everywhere I go by the number of hands that are lifted. And I ask everybody to just look around the room and I point out what we all know. This is not normal. We're like frogs in the, in the, in the boiling water at this point. So I don't, I don't really, you know, let historians a hundred years from now do all this deep diving into the weeds analysis about who got it kind of sort of right and how it really happened and really did it just start with Reagan or I don't know. Maybe it started with some of the austerity of Carter. I don't care. I don't know. All I know is a house is burning and it is not negative to yell fire if in, in fact the house is burning down. Who did the arson? How the fire started is not as important as that we save the house of our democracy because right now it is on fire. I want to ask a question about, about science. You've mentioned climate a, a bunch. The, uh, obviously, I feel very strongly about climate. I feel like the discourse over uh, science, uh, especially in COVID, has become um, extremely scrambled uh, and at times very, very uh, toxic. Um, you've talked in the past about uh, vaccines. I think there's uh, some skepticism, obviously, um, uh, in various quarters of the country across the political spectrum, by the way, skepticism of big pharma. But I also worry that skepticism of whether it's a government agency or uh, the pharmaceutical industry, as an example, that's, that healthy skepticism can tip over into science denialism. Where do you come down on the entire, I guess, debate over vaccines and their efficacy specifically? And, and how do you think about the, the balance between trust but verify, that kind of skepticism, uh, and tipping over into science denialism. First of all, healthy skepticism, as you said, is, I think, a part of right citizenship. But you're right. It can't just be blanket skepticism. It should be healthy skepticism. Now, contrary to popular belief, no, I have not said a word about vaccines. What I said, and this was before COVID, I said something about mandates and having a problem with mandates. I have spoken at various times, and I think it's naive not to suggest that there are some places when it comes to the behavior of big pharma where clearly there is predatory behavior. 
I haven't spoken about that specifically in terms of vaccines. I have spoken about it in general. And after the opioid crisis, Purdue Pharmacy, the Sackler family, 500,000 opioid overdoses, what are we talking about pretending that there's not something to look at there? So I think that it is very dangerous. And we are at that point where people are not trusting uh, the institutions that we should be able to rely upon. I, ha I heard a doctor, my own doctor, who said to me at one point, he was talking about something and he said, well, normally I would just look to see what the CDC has to say, but at this point I don't even bother. That's dangerous, but that's not just people's fault. That's the, there are too many situations from our government to our health organizations to, to, to such things as big pharma, which is the problem, of course, with a health, with a profit based healthcare system, right? Where people, you can't blame people, uh, who ask legitimate questions. Um, and then later, you know, it's, it's, it's like too many times the government and some of these, uh, institutions have cried wolf so many times have said they have 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 suppressed legitimate questioning that when the time came that we really needed to listen to some of these people, people didn't even want to hear them. So everybody has something to look at there, including the guardians of these huge institutions who at this point are going to have to get the trust of the people back. That's what, something I'm talking about in this campaign. Um, it's very, very dangerous when you have the guardians of the public trust become year after year after year, decade after decade for the, for, um, in order to keep power, in order to gain power, in order to keep money, in order to gain power, become so untrustworthy. And so much of the chaos that we're experiencing in our society today is because of that. Yeah. I mean, the vaccine discussion drives me crazy in this way, which is that I think, I mean, I don't presume good faith uh, uh, in, in most instances, especially not with big pharma. But when it comes to places, agencies like the CDC, rank and file people working there, I feel like there must be a thought process that says, listen, if we acknowledge any, uh, any questions, if we acknowledge that uh, a vaccine isn't 100% perfect with zero side effects, if we acknowledge any of those truths, it will be seized upon by uh, dishonest opportunists uh, to uh, sow doubt, uh, which is bad for mass public health. And I, I mean, I know from, I have physicians in my family that there, there are almost no medicines that have uh, no uh, uh, side effects or no, or no risks. So my point is, is in saying that I do think that rank and file folks who are trying to do the right thing in an agency like the CDC, uh, are probably calibrating, well, if we acknowledge any of, of the truths at the margins or the truths of the risks, we will open it up to a, a kind of a wave of uh, confusing information, which will harm the... Now, I, I think that infantilizes the public. That's exactly what I was going to say. It does infantilize the public and it creates, it does more to create uh, skepticism and to sow doubt. And I think when you're talking about the um, rank and file people working at such institutions, I think across the board, that's true. The rank and file person working in any of those institutions goes to work wanting to do the right thing and wanting in their own way to serve the public good. There's no doubt to me about that. But I, uh, you know, my father used to always say, talk to the smartest person on the jury. And this dumbing down of the American public, acting like we're dumb and talking to us like we're seventh graders is what has created uh, a lot of this infantile behavior on the part of people. 
Marianne Williamson is a Democratic candidate for president in 2024. You can find her website at Marianne2024.com. Marianne, it's really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking uh, time with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, you get to hear our bonus segment coming up this week with economist Richard Wolf. It's a fascinating discussion on how he thinks progressives should think about the rising economic tensions between the United States and China. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on the podcast app you are listening to this podcast on right now. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our lead producer is Jared jacang Mayer, and our editor is Dennis Golan. You can find all of our past episodes at levertimepod.com or on all of the major podcast players.